to the Live Oak Novel Review. I'm author Matthew Glasgow, and this is episode one. With this novel, we once again begin in the past, this time in the South, on a plantation and in the midst of a distressed conversation between a slave family. I began the novel with a brief description of a falcon hunting down a dove, which is meant to be symbolic to the novel's theme while also immediately relevant as our central character of that chapter, Isaac's son, uh, has run away from the plantation and is in the midst of being hunted. The falcon is obviously a predator, while the dove is not and is the standard symbol for peace. The brief description ends with the falcon flying out into the red, white, and blue sky, which is meant to suggest America. I knew I wanted to begin the novel in this setting, and I had a general idea of what I wanted to convey with this chapter, but I found myself writing the unexpected. I wanted to show the cruelties of slavery and have the experience of Isaac and his family be the catalyst to the modern day and discrimination still prevalent in American society. There was a simplistic way to do this, which would have been to just depict the slaves as victims and at the mercy of the white owners, which is in this chapter, but I found it necessary to add layers to this. Instead of just having Isaac's son run away, which is understandable enough, I thought it was more compelling for Isaac's family to place the blame on him for infecting his son with these obstinate ideas. When this idea took hold, I believed I had a much more compelling and complicated chapter and possible overall novel. It was this endless irony or paradox. Isaac is filled with rage and resentment for his condition in life. Every element he sees as a trap by the white slavers, especially the Christian religion. His rage is even more immense because he is practically all alone in his defiance. Yes, of course, no one wants to be a slave, but there comes this gradual wearing away of resistance, a methodical beatdown until the fight is gone and there is no other option than to just adapt. Isaac sees that in his wife, Teresa, and son, Mark, and especially in Teresa's religious devotion and the idea of accepting suffering in this lifetime in order to be rewarded with salvation in heaven, which he sees as the ultimate method of pacification of the slaves. Isaac at least has gotten through to his son Moriah, who has run away from the plantation. Isaac is proud of Moriah's resistance, but there is this lingering conclusion that if Moriah is caught, he will be punished severely if not killed. In that, Isaac's family is somewhat right. It is Isaac's fault. This, I thought, was essential as well. The idea of dissension among the slaves. Another generated way that slavery was perpetuated. That slaves acted as old Spartans turning in one another. It was fascinating to me uh, how this chapter turned out. Especially as I began with certain intentions, but saw them evolve as I actually began writing. Uh, Inspiration. I wrote this novel at a time of immense political upheaval and racial division in America. Uh, I saw people either incapable or unwilling to see the plight of African Americans. 
severe lack of empathy and humanity occurred. The novel begins with aggression, and I think that exists nearly throughout. I, like many, was angry at the time. I felt this immobility, this feeling of just talking to the wall and talking to certain people. Looking back on this novel and the opening conversation, I think that comes through in the Isaac character. Isaac is a smart person, uh, someone who uh, understands history, religion, and literature, passed down from his father. As a slave, he is obviously stuck, but he at least has a mind always working, picking up patterns and trying to learn. However, he is frustrated almost more so by his fellow slaves who he sees as accepting their fate as slaves and not having an intense hatred toward white people and their owners as he does. To Isaac, everything associated with white people, his owners, should be rejected. Yet he sees his wife kiss her Bible and wants to learn how to read just to ingratiate herself more in the culture and belief system. He sees the slaves losing their animosity and can't understand how they are not constantly furious and attempting to break away. Isaac's frustrations, I think, are felt throughout the novel. There's such frustration and heartache when a person is trying to do the right thing and cannot penetrate through society. Or a person sees an immense incongruity or unfairness and sees society as either blind to it or unwilling to change it. Craft and Structure There is a tension, as I've said, to irony and paradox in this chapter. However, I also see this chapter as symbolic of the entire novel, a parable of sorts. What Isaac and his family experience echoes to the modern day and show both the logical progression of things, but also the severe lack of progress, essentially not much changing at all. Isaac cites examples from ancient history for this as well, drawing parallels to show how history is just repeating itself endlessly, because people, at their core, do not change. They are greedy, and those in charge will exploit slaves or the lowly class into infinity. The significance of Isaac's name and his father's rationale for naming it is very important to the novel as well. It establishes the premise of never forgetting that you may be sacrificed at any moment, even by someone who you assume loves you, at any moment, so never let your guard down. I think this sentiment is apparent throughout the novel. Chapter one, with the setting sun, the falcon plunged to the earth. In its cold black eyes, it saw the dove swerving in the sky, veering through live oak and elm branches, up hillocks and swaying rows of tobacco and cotton, and past the lone home structure of man. This dove was crafty and it knew to divert its patterns to counteract the young falcon's immense speed. The falcon had to slow itself at each sharp turn of the dove, nearly plummeting to the ground during one instance, and narrowly avoiding the bricks of the briar in another. The dove was desperate, but it was not equipped like the falcon. It was small, with its frightened eyes on the side of its head, and it had lived long enough to be overfed and languid, even in its frantic push for survival. The falcon inched closer, both lusting and infuriated by its prey plump's form. The dove weaved and ducked, but the falcon had its pattern down. 
In the red sky, it reached out its talons, grasped the dove by its neck, and crushed it against the earth. The falcon deftly plucked off the dove's feathers and feasted on this lesser creature until it had its fill. In the distance, it heard other doves mournfully cooing and jays and finches filling the air with the incessant chirps. The sun was nearly set and the falcon flew out into brilliant shades of red, white, and blue. I told him not to do it, but he never listens. He's gonna get it this time. She wiped the remaining cotton strands and bowl flakes stuck on her fingertips onto her shift, stared out into the darkening sky and made the sign of the cross. What are you doing that for? That'll do no good, Teresa. He chewed his snuff and shook his head. He needs Jesus to protect him. He's the good shepherd and they're out looking for him. That damn Spence catches every fugitive slave. Jesus will give him deliverance. Jesus never done that. That was Moses led them slaves out. Jesus done more than that. He died so we can live forever in heaven, in paradise. Well, what are we supposed to do in the meantime? Jesus has it figured out. He watches over us. Those that suffer will inherit the kingdom, young Mark added, itching underneath his tunic. That sounds like a white man's God. Don't blaspheme, Isaac, Teresa screeched. Ah, hell, even the Israelites had enough sense to believe in a God who would smite the enemies of the believers. At least they got their revenge from the Pharaoh and the lot, killed the Pharaoh's son and brought pestilence. Jesus is the God's son and were to turn the other cheek. Is that so? How come no one told the white folks that yet? What do you think they'll do once Spence catches Mariah? He spit a wad of tobacco onto the ground and rolled up his sleeves. The nightfall had chilled the hot spring day. Master Andrew is a good man. He'd only do what was necessary. He never get too out of hand. Mariah run before and Master whipped him good, but forgave him. What are you gonna do this time? Teresa opened her mouth, but stayed silent a moment. She did not want the thought about her son to enter her mind. That fool shouldn't have run off again. He don't leave Master Andrew much choice. Why you fill his head with all that junk, Pa? I have enough sense to know to stay put, but Mo have an imagination, and he hot-headed. Some type of devil come over him. Isaac looked at young Mark with contempt. He told the boy, now a gargantuan six foot six, that he was not his father, but he would either not accept it or he was too thick-skulled to fully grasp it. Teresa was sure his mother, but Master Andrew and that slick roving coach brought that beast of a man to the plantation nearly 20 years ago. He was even larger than Mark and spoke not a word. The white folks called him a dummy and said he was mute, but Isaac knew the man could speak. It was better that the man was all animal, all livestock, all stud. Teresa was the largest female slave, so she was naturally chosen. They kept those two penned up in the shack for nearly two weeks until they were certain she was impregnated and the slick man and his coach and human stud were gone. She gave birth to this monstrosity with exaggerated features like some giant on a mountain, some biblical Nephilim, and hated it. Yet its existence was not the child's fault. It was born from Teresa and he loved her and could not turn away from this innocent being. Mariah, on the other hand, he knew to be his. Youngin, I hope you are hot-headed and angry every day of your life, he nearly screamed, and a faint echo of, I've, 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 rang through the otherwise quiet night. Hush, no need getting them white folks any more riled up with our racket. Let's go inside, Teresa added after removing the finger from her mouth and opening the door of their quarters. She refused to call it a shack. It was always their quarters. Two hayfold cots, a copy of the Bible, a set of playing cards, a bucket of water, 
and a razor and strap comprised the quarters. Simon, the house servant, would have to shave Master Andrew's face twice a week, and Simon gifted Isaac a dulled old razor that would catch his skin whenever he attempted to use it. Teresa always kissed the Bible whenever she entered the quarters. Though she could not read, she had picked up how to locate a certain verse through Mrs. Annabeth's weekly lessons. She could even feign reading a few passages, though she had only memorized them from hearing the mistress recite them. Teresa had subtly asked Mistress Annabeth if she could be taught to read in order to fully comprehend what she needed to do and to know to get into heaven. But Mistress responded by saying, you need only to hear and have faith in the word. Whoever has ears ought to hear. Be the seed that fell on rich soil. They are the ones, when they have heard the word, embrace it with a generous and good heart and bear fruit through perseverance. You don't need to read to understand how to get into heaven. Just persevere and have a good heart in this life and you will live forever in the next one. Teresa and Isaac sat on their cot and Mark sat across on his and his missing brother Mariah's. Mark shuffled the deck of cards ambivalently. He and Mariah would play nearly every evening. I just don't know why he run. We were getting along good here, Mark said while shaking his head. Jesus will light his way. Would you stop with that nonsense? That white girl have you all twisted up in your mind. Don't talk about Mistress Annabeth like that. She's a good woman. Ah, oh, hell, good woman. Got you all set up to give up on this life for the kingdom in the clouds. I've been glaring at that sky and that mean sun beating down for nearly 50 years, and I've never seen no palaces or bearded white men playing harps. Hearing them field hands singing about telling God the road sure was rocky when they got home and stretching out their arms in their graves when they laid this body down. Well, you talk like that and you won't have nothing to worry about anyway. Good Jesus, you pine about the heat now. I cannot imagine how much you'll irk the devil. Oh, they really got you fooled. It's perfect too. Their God is a sweet white man who never did nothing but heal the sick and they strung him up and nailed him on the cross. And then those Romans feel real bad about it. So they build him a nice palace in Rome and white folks from that point forward never saw themselves as the Romans, but as Jesus and his disciples, even though they never stopped being the Romans and never stopped crucifying and conquering. Them folks just making sure we get salvation because they never willing to give it to us here on earth. That's in that white blood. Swindlers. This land ain't even rightfully theirs. And they just took it like they took us. And then they say, be good and work hard. And someday you'll get what's rightfully yours. Show us you can do it. Show us you're worthy. And then maybe you'll get a shot. Master Andrew say some of his kin was slaves, but now they free. And look at all they have. That's just the ebb and flow. Someone always got to be the slave and someone got to be the master. All they had to do was not be slaves. They just needed to be freed. Skin's the same and all. What about us? How easy Mariah gonna get found? No freed black man would get found. You put all that mess in his head. Don't act like you didn't. Talking that mess about the Romans. Andrew said you was a slave in Rome until you served your country or master well. We just gotta be patient and we haven't much choice anyway. No sense barking at the sky about it. Ain't gonna do no good, Mark interjected. Mariah get up north enough, he might have a chance. Let's just pray and get some rest. Nothing we can do. Nothing we can do. Mark put his head against the cot and closed his eyes. Amen, Isaac said sardonically and closed his eyes. Nothing we can do. That was the thought that finally broke them all. He rose in the middle of the night, tired but knowing sleep to be an impossibility. Maybe they were right. Maybe he had doomed his son. Looking at Teresa sleeping peacefully on the cot with its stained burlap and hard straw just infuriated him. So he stepped out of the shack 
and sat at the workbench where Teresa and Mabel and the other slave women would strip the corn and slice the vegetables for the stews and meals for the day, often cooking while also spending hours in the cotton fields. He looked out into the stars. It was dark and he was comforted in the thought that Mariah could not be found in such darkness. If he was swift and prudent, maybe he would be far enough away by the morning. Mariah would either vanish or he'd be gone soon after they caught him. It pained him to realize this finality in the chilled night. The crickets and frogs croaked and hummed in rhythm and the trees swayed and slushed like waves along the shore. He had never seen the ocean, but it was somewhere in his mind. In some book he secretly read as a boy, in some wreck or naval battle he had heard about, what his father told him of home so long ago. Some memory his father had, though distant even then, of where he came from. A place his father was told was hotter and barren in some regions, though lush and teeming with life in others. He would ask his father to tell him more, but his father refused. After pestering him incessantly, his father finally admitted his kin had not told him that tale. Just some adult male and female in the plantation who cared for him like a father and mother. That revelation was devastating, but it seemed to hurt his father worse. It will all be gone soon enough, his father told him, his body limp with a fury in his face, like a fighter tired yet crazed from just finishing an arduous bout. You and me are not blood kin, though I love you like a son. I have a blood son somewhere, I'm sure, but it is not you. They keep us in this great confusion and we forget we were once humans and from a foreign land like the white folks. And one day, your children or your children's children are just gonna be used to it. They won't even question or think it odd. They'll be like the mule or the ox, born in the pen and not realizing that's not where they're naturally supposed to be. Hell, they wouldn't even budge or run if you left the gate open scared senseless of a life outside the pen. When this is the life you know, you never gonna fight it. Isaac drew some tobacco into his mouth and chewed. There used to be a slight tingle that would course through him when he had snuff in. Now he felt nothing and it was just something to do. It at least took his mind off of Mariah for the moment. The moon was nearly full and the cadence of the nocturnal creatures left him singing. I know moonrise, I know star rise, laid his body down. The field hands used to sing the spiritual while cultivating tobacco when he was a boy at the Benjamin plantation. The thought made him disgusted with the tobacco now in his mouth, especially the stench in the field and how the tobacco would stain his hands. He recalled a young boy, maybe 16, get almost whipped to death by the old Captain McAllen. He could not recall the boy's name, though he remembered he used to fool around and sing those field songs really high pitched like a girl and all the others would just bust up about it. That boy deserved him remembering his name, but it was out of his mind. However, McAllen always stuck with him because his name sounded just like Magdalene and the juxtaposition of this stout, sun-reddened slave driver as a disciple woman, humbling washing Jesus' feet, amused him at the time. He remembered fighting off the urge of smiling while looking at McAllen, imagining him in silk Persian robes, beads, and long fingernails as McAllen would be grunting some order at him from atop his wagon and mule team sweat dripping from the sides of his faded black long-brimmed hat. A look in McAllen's eyes that said, I know you saw what I done with that boy and you go and get it next. And Isaac just biting his lips to hold back a smile and nodding sternly back at McAllen, this odd mix of fear, amusement, and intimacy. Believing McAllen was reading his mind, saw the comical image of himself, hated it for he feared the derision. And so there was this silent covenant between slave and driver that we know is all an ugly farce. But if the truth gets out, the white man guarantee it. We'll make sure it be a farce no more. 
and you'll even fear the thoughts that are in your own black head. Get on back that line, young John, McAllen would say to him when he was in the fields at 12. Get your head out in the clouds. You mind the heavens that much, show enough you be there. He spoke worse than most of the slaves on the line and looked like he bathed less frequently. A disgraced fishing captain that meandered down to the plantation. McAllen reveled in the slaves calling him captain, though they called him it in jest now, as his mind was deteriorated from whiskey and possibly some other malady underneath that bulbous skull. The slaves liked to sing loudly once he was down the road, McAllen always flailing in irritation but too far gone to come back to scold them, and they teasingly repeated his saying to Isaac, you mind the heavens that much, show enough you be there, when they got caught daydreaming or loosening the slack. Eventually, they lost the joke of the saying and repeated it to anyone not on task, whether McAllen was around or not. A bunch of damn Spartans, Isaac's father would say. They didn't need no government or written laws in Sparta. They'd all police themselves. Each man judge, jury, and executioner to his neighbor. Their expectation was perfection, and if you weren't perfect, you'd be gone. Boy, at least Jesus said, love thy neighbor as yourself. Best piece of advice he could have given mankind was that mankind ain't perfect. And how you know? You think about yourself. His father, who was not really his father, like he was not really Mark's father, had this depth of knowledge from growing up at a house servant for a trader named Terence Lapointe. There, he learned about the Bible and ancient civilizations, as well as Plato and some literature of the day. Lapointe was kind and never beat him and allowed him to sleep in the house. On Sundays, Lapointe would even allow him to sit with the family for dinner, as he declared it was the Lord's Day. Lapointe was sickly and required frequent physician's care. Knowing he was not long for this earth, he told him he would be freed upon his death. However, the white man lied and left him to his cousin, Louis Montaigne, who was turning a profit on his tobacco in Virginia and likely appealed to Lapointe that he needed the extra labor. From his years as a servant in the house, he was ill-equipped to work in the hot sun hauling tobacco, and he was by far the weakest laborer on the line, even if he was taller and larger in the arms and chest than most of the men. He soon came to find Montaigne much more ruthless than he could imagine white men to be. Due to his size, Montaigne decided to force him to breed with the women's servants. He had yet to be with a woman, and there he was, being thrown from one cot to the next, Montaigne even watching to ensure the deed was being executed. The male slaves sneered at him, for he was sleeping with their women, and after about a week on the plantation, they would jump him nightly, thankfully with enough sense not to kill him, as murder would be their deaths as well, for he was the prized calf. After two months, four of the seven women were pregnant. Seeing little value for him as a worker and evidence of his productivity elsewhere, Montaigne sold him to a plantation in Mississippi and was sold from there to Georgia until he find it, finally ended up at the Kendrick Plantation. Look up at the sky and count the stars. Just so shall your descendants be, he quoted with a grim smile. Know for certain that your descendants shall be alien in a land not their own, where they shall be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation they must serve, and in the end they will depart with great wealth. Is that you, Daddy? Isaac had asked. I'm sure I have that quote memorized because I believe it to pertain to me, but I never know how to think about it. With all of those descendants I have like stars, none were born from love like a man and woman supposed to have. They come from cold production, manufactured, the taskmaster at the controls. They are mine and I'd like to think that prophecy would come true, but none of them are in front of me. None of them will I see or speak to or teach in this lifetime. Only you, Isaac. Isaac looked out to the stars. 
The planets were out there too, all named after Roman gods and myths. He thought of his father more. Then white people are affectionate of the names in the New Testament and on saints. So that is why they call you John. But remember, I call you Isaac. Abraham was faithful to the Lord and waited his whole lifetime to have an offspring. And the Lord finally gave him Isaac. Your name is that because you are my real son, no matter the blood. And I hope every good man would do the same with those that are mine. But your name is Isaac because the Lord tested Abraham and told him to sacrifice his son. And Abraham took Isaac to the mountain, tied his son up, and even had the knife for the slaughter out when a messenger of the Lord intervened and told him to stop. They say the message of this story is to have faith in the Lord and always do as he asks. But I named you Isaac because you are Isaac of today. And in knowing the story, you know that you may always be liable to being sacrificed. May distrust be your enduring asset in this life because they want nothing more than for you to trust, to say, yes, sir, for you to believe them that the work will be easier tomorrow, that the food in the quarters will be better if you just keep up the hard work and the plantation sees a profit but they'll never give the profit to you and just keep conquering into eternity for you to believe them that your punishment is your fault and not from their cruelty for you to believe them when they say they will free you and that the world is changing and cannot allow this to go on any longer. When you ask them, where's the sheep for the Holocaust? Do not accept God himself will provide. They are the holders of the knife and they will think nothing of using it. Thank you very much for listening. Join us next time as we continue chapter one. Please make sure to follow on Instagram at Matthew Glasgow Author and visit Amazon for reading options for this novel and others. Until next time.